basically. Let's go around the horn, and I'll assume if you give me a go, you've got no instrumentation problems. Booster? Go flight. Retro? Go flight. Fighter? Go flight. Control? Telcom? Go. TNC? Econ? Capcom? Go. Surgeon? Go. OMP? Go. AFC? RAO? Go. Network? Go. You got everything up? Hello, I'm Ian Christie, and this is Terranauts. Today on Terranauts, we're back to looking at the NASA Gemini program and its quest to get American astronauts back in orbit after a couple of year hiatus. When last we looked at the timeline of the Gemini program, it had finally made its way into space more than a year after it had originally expected to. The first flight had basically been an unmanned flight with a dummy capsule. It really wasn't a test of the Gemini spacecraft, per se. It really was a test of the Gemini booster, which had been necessary because the Titan Gemini launch vehicle had not exactly been inspiring confidence at NASA, as it had been focused for quite some time, with the U.S. Air Force as its prime contractor, um, uh, on developing a Titan ICBM rather than on building a Gemini launch vehicle. But by April of 1964, those issues were now behind the program. Then, as we discussed, all that Gemini had to do was to get the actual Gemini spacecraft ready for launch and get the astronauts that were going to fly in it and the controllers on the ground who were going to support it trained and ready for launch as well. And neither of those tasks had been easy because of a variety of technical issues. Um, it required some creativity on the part of Gemini managers to find a spacecraft configuration that could be ready to launch in the fall of 1964. But with the requisite creativity and some timely progress being made on issues like the ejection seats in the orbital attitude and maneuvering system, otherwise known as the thrusters, in the winter and spring of 1964, Gemini believed it was ready to go. Final preparations for the first flight of the Gemini spacecraft kicked into high gear, in the spring of 1964. This flight, Gemini 2, uh, would be a flight of the full Gemini capsule, but it wouldn't include any astronauts. Uh, before putting astronauts on board, there were some critical tests of the capsule that, um, that the capsule needed to pass. Most notably, um, the full re-entry system needed to be tested. Effectively, Gemini 1 had showed that Gemini could get to orbit. Now they needed to prove that it could get home safely as well. Uh, with the first flight having been basically a complete success, and with good news from the injection seat and thruster teams, the Gemini program management met in the week after Gemini 1 and confidently predicted that Gemini 2 would be ready to fly in late August. And the first full manned mission, Gemini 3, would follow in November. It seemed indeed that American astronauts would be back in space by the end of 1964. Alas, it was not to be. Uh, the first part of the reason why turned out to be that despite all of the best efforts of the humans involved in the project, Mother Nature still got a vote. Now, if you have not worked in the NASA Human Exploration Program, you may not have stopped to consider that the choice of placing America's space launch facility in a region that is notorious for A, being as flat as a pancake without any cover whatsoever, B, being in the path of one, and often many more, hurricanes a year, which have a bad habit of blowing tall, thin structures sticking out of the landscape over, and C, also notorious for violent thunderstorms where lightning is, 
attracted, similarly, to tall metal structures raised high above the landscape. Trust me, though, if you have worked in NASA's human spaceflight program, you are well aware of these facts and, frankly, have probably questioned the wisdom of NASA's founders in tones of less than complete reverence and awe. Seriously. The plain fact of the matter is that if you were looking for a place on Earth less amenable weather-wise for the regular launching of large spacecraft, I'm not sure that you could have done much worse than Cape Canaveral, Florida. Now, Cape Canaveral is an outstanding place for space launch for a number of reasons. It has access to an easterly-facing launch range that allows launch from just about any point in the compass from 0 degrees to 180. It's close to other major centers in the U.S., and to transportation hubs that reach all of the other major centers in the U.S. and, well, the world. Hey, it's even close to Disney World, so that when you're stranded there waiting at a launch delay, you'll have something to do with your time off. But, in the matter of weather, well, let's just say I wish I had a dime for every time I showed up for a launch, and it didn't happen because of weather. Now, the Soviet space program effectively had solved these problems in the other order. In Baikonur, they picked a site that was in the middle of the high desert. It's clear and dry almost all of the time. It's not subject to hurricanes, tornadoes, or even very many thunderstorms, at least from what I've heard. It is also just about as far from anything else on the planet as it is possible to get. Within the space community, the stories of epic journeys to reach Baikonur are both legendary and legion. But at least if you get to Baikonur, you're probably going to get to see the event you came for. So, the meteorological risks of sighting the NASA Space Launch Facility came home to the Gemini program very clearly in the late summer and early fall of 1964. Uh, Mother Nature's assertions of her right to be considered started on the afternoon and the evening of the 17th of August. Until then, things had been going well for the booster team at the Cape. The booster was on the pad and mated and just about to go into final testing when, during a thunderstorm, the launch complex was apparently struck by lightning. Now, I say apparently because a lightning strike is not actually a physical impact, but rather a massive electrical discharge. Its effects are often only detectable through um, indirect evidence like burnt-out electronics or even scorching marks where the discharge has overloaded circuitry, and such evidence was found at the GLV-2 launch complex. Uh, Although there was no apparent damage to the booster itself, Investigation revealed a number of failed electrical components in the ground support equipment, um, so damage to the booster systems couldn't be ruled out. And this left NASA, NASA with a decision to make. In the end, NASA decided it was just too risky to fly with any electrical components that had been subjected to such an uh, electromagnetic event. So they decided to replace every semiconductor based, every semiconductor-based part on the booster and to test all electrical systems on the booster and the ground support equipment, all of which would take a couple of weeks. However, just as that testing was being completed, the test team received word that Hurricane Cleo, which had been expected to miss the Cape, had suddenly veered and was now deemed to be a threat. So the team scrambled to make the launch vehicle safe in the short time that they had available, which wasn't all that long. Um, They managed to get the second stage demated and undercover, but the first stage had to stay out on the pad secured to the erector. In the end, Cleo only brushed the cape, and so the winds were never strong enough to cause any concerns. But the issue with hurricanes is not only the danger that they pose to buildings and equipment, 
It's the disruption that they cause in the area around the facility. Um, When staff are focused on keeping their own property and loved ones safe, they can't really be expected to be focused on maintaining launch schedules. And so it was nearly a week before the booster was reassembled on the pad and ready to start doing all of the mating tests all over again. And then Hurricane Dora appeared and headed straight for the Cape. No glancing blow this time. So GLV-2 had to be demated again, and the whole booster had to be removed from the pad and placed under cover. Uh, the team waited out Hurricane Dora and was just getting ready to head back to the pad to start all over again when Hurricane Ethel appeared. So operations were further delayed. So finally, after one thunderstorm and three hurricanes, by late September, GLV-2 was back on the pad and ready to pick up where it had left off over a month earlier. But uh, by this time, it was clear that it was not going to be possible to get Gemini 2 off the launch pad before November. And that meant that Gemini 3, the first flight with astronauts on board, wasn't going to happen until 1965. In the end, although the weather delay of a month had been the source of a great deal of frustration for the team at the Cape, it didn't actually add very much to the schedule, because the spacecraft was not actually delivered to the Cape until late in September anyways. From that point, booster and spacecraft went forward together. The pre-mate checks of the booster went mostly smoothly, not surprisingly since they were being performed for like the third time. The pre-flight checks of the capsule did not. Still, by the morning of the 8th of December, the rocket was ready and the countdown duly started. The countdown was fairly smooth, with only a few small holds, and at 11.41 on 9 December, the engine started. And one second later, they shut down. Though this was not the outcome that NASA had been hoping for, uh, or indeed expecting, it was actually a positive outcome in the end. It turned out that the primary flight control system had lost hydraulic pressure, and although the system had switched over to the secondary system, there was an automatic override command that shut the engines down if that switchover happened in the first three seconds after the engine started, while the engines were still spooling up to full power. And that, in fact, is what had happened to Gemini 2. The fault that had caused the problem was, in fact, quite serious, so the automatic abort was actually a very good thing. Uh, It turned out that the loss of hydraulic pressure had been the result of a servo valve that had burst, when subjected to an unexpectedly high pressure just as the engines had started. Um, The failure ended up being a bit of a cautionary tale about making late design changes uh, without testing. The servo valve that had failed had been uh, upgraded uh, over the model that had flown on GLV-1, and in an effort to save weight, it had been noted that the servo valve housings were twice as thick as they needed to be in order to meet the design pressure loads. So the housing thickness had been reduced, but no testing had actually been done to see what pressure the housings actually had to sustain during startup, uh, which turned out to be a lot higher than the design pressures. And so this was, in fact, a cautionary tale about the fact that there really is no such thing as too much testing. Having survived that near-catastrophic failure, The launch team was, however, presented with another situation um, for which no contingency plan had been prepared. There was no procedure 
forgetting a Gemini capsule, bristling with armed pyrotechnics, off a live Gemini booster. Uh, to give an example of the never-ending small details that make working with a rocket such an exciting profession, making the thrusters safe was a particular challenge because the thrusters used a pyrotechnic charge to arm them once on orbit. Until this charge was blown, the valves in the thruster lines could not be inadvertently opened, and this was important because with hypergolic reactants, opening the valve would have caused the thruster to fire. The pyrotechnic charges could not be made safe without removing them. And the charges were part of the valve assembly, so to make them safe, the whole valve needed to come out. But removing the valves meant that there would be a significant risk of causing the reactants to mix and the thrusters to fire, which would have been an undesirable event, to say the least. Uh, in the end, the pad team came up with a technique for freezing the thruster reactant lines with dry ice and liquid nitrogen so the valves could be safely removed while the lines were frozen. Um, it, this did also generate a note that the thrusters um, should be redesigned to include a drainage valve to allow for safe removal of the hypergolics. And this feature was added to future Gemini spacecraft. At any rate, the net effect of the investigation and the rework was to delay the next launch into 1965. But while the launch preparation team is getting ready for the new Gemini era, let's take a moment to consider the flight control team, for whom the old era truly was ending with Gemini 2, and a brand new era would dawn with Gemini 3. The biggest signature of that new era was, of course, the move of the flight control center itself from Florida to Houston at the Manned Space Flight Center. In fact, Gemini 2 would act as much a checkout for the new mission control center as a checkout for the Gemini spacecraft. Uh, because the flight was so short and because there was no crew on board, there wasn't really a whole lot that flight controllers expected to do on Gemini 2 except monitor the systems and ensure that the automated commands were issued on time as expected. And while officially mission control would still be run out of the Mercury Control Center at the Cape, MCC in Houston would be following the flight and in effect doing as much monitoring as was being done in Florida none of which actually made the run-up to Gemini less stressful time for Chris Kraft and the management of the Flight Operations Directorate, whose job it was to deliver successful missions. Not only were they facing uh, mastering a new spacecraft, one that was, to all intents and purposes, still in its developmental stage, they would also, after Gemini 2, be doing it out of a new control center, uh, one that was full of new and operationally untried technology, uh, including a lot of newfangled digital computers that were not fully tested and not fully trusted by many of the slide-rule-wielding members of the flight control team, especially the older and more senior members of that class. Now, the pressure had further increased because in October, the Soviet spacecraft once again scored a first with the flight of Voshkod-1, which was the first flight, of a capsule with more than one astronaut on board. And once again, NASA felt the weight of public expectation on its performance. Uh, Chris Kraft certainly felt the pressure, as Gene Krantz said in his autobiography, Failure is Not an Option. Each evening, Chris and I would meet in the apartment, and I would listen to him run through the long list of open items for the first unmanned launch. As troubles mushroomed in the thruster and seat tests, he became obsessed with ensuring that the control team 
was capable of detecting and responding to any problems in flight. Given that, it seemed like Gemini 2 was, in fact, a great opportunity to put a lot of the Gemini ground control system to the test in a fairly low-risk environment. This was because the flight was literally only going to last for a few minutes. But more importantly, the entire mission sequence was automated, so mission control really only needed to be available to issue backup commands in the event that the program sequence didn't execute correctly. And new mission control in Houston would be fully up and running and following the mission to provide further backup and allow them to check out their communications and telemetry and display system. It should have been a piece of cake. Should have been. The official history of the Gemini project records it as pretty much an entirely nominal event. The countdown began a little after midnight and proceeded with no significant anomalies and no unplanned holds to a picture-perfect launch. At a few minutes after nine in the morning on the 19th of January, booster lofted the capsule to an altitude of 160 nanometers, and once the booster had separated, the capsule immediately initiated its re-entry procedures and splashed down literally a few minutes later in the South Atlantic, where it was retrieved by the carrier USS Lake Champlain. Um, inside the Mercury, Mercury Control Center, things were a little less nominal. Uh, even though it was going to be a very short flight, the combination of its being the first flight of Gemini and the last flight due to be run out of the Florida Control Center meant that there was much more media interest than usual, and unlike the Mercury flights, that interest came in the form of several TV cameras complete with lights, and they were all plugged in to the Mercury Control Center power supply, and the net effect of which was that a few seconds before launch, when all the cameras and lights were powered up, they overloaded the circuits in the Mercury Control Center, and it was plunged into complete darkness. Gene Krantz recalls that, quote, It was so dark I couldn't read my stopwatches. We'd been plunged into a power failure because of the overload caused by the TV lighting. The only illumination in the room came from the small buttons on the Western Electric intercom sets, which were provided with a battery backup. Team scrambled to restore power, but by the time the lights came on, Gemini 2 was actually well on its way back to Earth, and the Houston Mission Control Center ended up doing most of the actual monitoring of the flight. So, it was a bit of an anticlimactic end to mission control operations in Florida, but it more than fulfilled the requirement of determining that MCC in Houston was ready to take over the job. It was, however, a bit of a metaphor for where NASA found itself in 1965 and how that compared to where it had been just three years earlier when John Glenn had been the first American to make it to orbit. Now, NASA certainly had a lot more experience that they had than they had in 1962, but then a lot more people were watching, and that extra attention had the potential to generate, well, unintended consequences. The team at NASA was also much bigger, and that team uh, included a lot of new faces, not only in the flight control room, but also on board the spacecraft. And it shouldn't be underestimated how much this latter fact weighed on the senior management of the flight control team. In the days of Mercury, they had personally selected and hired just about every member of the team, including the astronauts who flew the missions. And, while for Gemini, they certainly knew all of the astronauts, they hadn't selected them. And they didn't really have much say over which astronauts were assigned to which flights, because now there was a whole separate division at the Manned Space Flight Center that handled all of those details. 
In the days of the Mercury mission, the team had been small and cohesive. The Mercury program, which was very much a case of a small group of smart, talented, dedicated individuals thrown together to solve a big and complex problem, which a lot of people didn't believe they could solve. So, responsibility was concentrated in a few hands, decisions were made locally, and basically being successful technically was pretty much the only thing the team needed to do to guarantee the support they needed in order to be able to continue pursuing their goals. But things had changed. For one thing, the stakes were much higher. Even though Gemini 3 would be a short mission, no longer than John Glenn's first orbital flight had been in 1962, the ramifications of it not being completely successful were much more serious. When John Glenn flew, NASA was the scrappy underdog with something to prove. The agency and its programs were relatively new, untried, and, frankly, not costing the American taxpayer a lot of money, and not costing American politicians a lot of political capital. But NASA's early success had meant that it was taking a more and more central role in the United States' image of itself. And as that happened, NASA had attracted a much larger budget, and a lot more political oversight. It's fair to say that not everyone on the NASA team had um, fully adjusted to this new reality. For one thing, having a larger and much more professional team um, led to some unexpected tensions. Uh, on Mercury, everyone was learning a new job. Managers and astronauts who were central to the program could be confident that they probably had as much or more experience as anyone working on the program, since they were all more or less inventing the professional discipline of spaceflight operations. Now, pretty much everyone was a full-time professional in their chosen profession, and this led to some tension as new rules and roles were being worked out. And one of these incidents involved the role of astronauts on the ground, specifically at remote stations. Now, during Mercury, these had mostly not been manned by any permanent staff. Um, the ground controllers would go out to the stations in advance of the flight and get things ready, and they'd be joined for the flight by an astronaut who was act as Capcom, the, the voice of the ground station, but who would also act as the station commander during flight. On Gemini, however... Because of improving communications infrastructure, there were actually far fewer remote stations, and they had ground controllers assigned to them pretty much permanently, and some of whom had been with the program for several years and had been learning their trade from the previous generation of controllers. On the other hand, the astronauts that were assigned to go out to the remote stations as Capcoms were mostly chosen from the more junior astronauts, so they had no spaceflight experience and relatively little experience of NASA at all. And this led to the most serious tension when Pete Conrad, a new astronaut, showed up in Australia in preparation for the flight and announced to the controllers who'd been working there together for months preparing for the flight that he was there to take command for the flight. And the lead controller at the station was less than pleased with this proposed arrangement. The issue was escalated to Chris Kraft and Deke Slayton, who managed to come up with a compromise that satisfied, well, no one, uh, and which actually seriously affected the working relationship between ground controllers and crew. The net result was that after the flight, the practice of sending astronauts out to command the remote stations was effectively ended. Kraft and Slayton agreed, effectively, that flight controllers would be on com in command on the ground and the crew would be in command. In flight. 
It also, I believe, began the practice of having the Capcom position be filled where possible by an astronaut that actually had spaceflight experience, although I don't know that for sure. There were two other incidents that were worth noting because, um, although they were minor in and of themselves, they were kind of harbingers of the new NASA era. The first occurred before the flight, when it came time to name the spacecraft. In the Mercury program, each astronaut had named their own craft. So, Gus Grissom, as the commander of Gemini 3, naturally assumed that he was going to be given the chance to name Gemini 3. He chose the name Molly Brown, um, which is a bit of an inside joke that requires some explanation to a 21st century audience. Now, you may recall that Grissom's first flight ended, uh, well, badly. Uh, he'd gotten out of his capsule, but it had flooded and sunk. And Grissom remembered, and was likely uh, frequently reminded, of that fact. The name Molly Brown was a kind of backhanded reference to this event, because at the time the musical The Unsinkable Molly Brown was popular on Broadway. To NASA insiders, this was an amusing reference to their shared history. And NASA management was not, however, amused. Grissom was invited to reconsider his choice of a name on a number of occasions, but most of his alternative choices were even less palatable than Molly Brown, so the name stuck. But it was the last time that a Gemini spacecraft got a name. From then on, they were known simply by their flight number. The second incident occurred during the flight and involved a uh, an impromptu takeout food delivery, but we'll get to that instance and its later ramifications in a minute. First, why don't we just finally get Gemini 3 off the ground? Now, the final countdown to Gemini 3 started at 2 o'clock in the morning on the 23rd of March, 1965. By 7.30 in the morning, the crew, Gus Grissom and John Young, who was one of the new class of astronauts, were aboard Molly Brown. There were a couple of minor holds in the final countdown, and a few questions about, what else, the weather. But at 9.35, the Gemini Titan launch vehicle lifted the Gemini spacecraft from the pad, and the first American astronauts were on their way to orbit for the first time in nearly two years. Now, the flight itself was reasonably uneventful. The main aim of the mission was to check out the major capsule systems, most particularly the Orbital Attitude Maneuvering System, which was designed to give the astronauts much more control over the spacecraft on orbit than the Mercury attitude thrusters had done. In fact, a major part of the flight plan was for the astronauts to use the OAMS to put the capsule into a sort of fail-safe orbit at the start of their third orbit. This was an orbit that was designed to cause Molly Brown to re-enter the atmosphere, even if the re-entro retro rockets uh, didn't fire properly. Like the OAMS, the re-entry retropack was one of the systems that hadn't been tested on Gemini 2, since Gemini 2 had basically flown a ballistic trajectory from launch to landing. The OAMS system worked very well, and the retro rockets fired on schedule, and after three orbits and a little over four hours, Gus Grissom and John Young were on their way back to Earth. And the only part of the flight that really didn't go according to plan, however, was in fact the re-entry uh, despite firing on schedule and working as expected, um, the retrofiring put Molly Brown on a trajectory to land well short of its intended splashdown point. And, despite Gus Grissom's best attempts, the Gemini capsule proved that it really did not provide enough lift on re-entry for the crew to have much of an impact on its final landing point once re-entry was underway. 
As a result, the Molly Brown landed about 100 kilometers from the nearest recovery vessel, vessel uh, which had to send out a helicopter to retrieve the crew and the capsule. And for 30 minutes, the Molly Brown proved that it was watertight while the crew waited with the hatches sealed for the recovery team to arrive. Um, but while the experience proved that the Gemini capsule was seaworthy, it also proved that in the words of John Young, it was, quote, not a boat. Um, its seakeeping qualities were sufficiently uh, exciting to cause Gus Grissom to get a second look at the lunch that he'd consumed on orbit, uh, which lunch would soon become the topic of the final and in a funny way most enduring controversy of the Gemini 3 flight. This, in a way, links back to the end of an era event that I referred to a minute ago. You see, what had happened is that Wally Shira had, as a joke, purchased a corned beef sandwich at Wolfie's, a restaurant that was a favorite of the astronauts in Cape Canaveral. And Shira had given it to Young, who'd smuggled it aboard and presented it to the skipper as a surprise treat during the mission. Now, this kind of event, again, was the kind of inside joke between crew and even the ground controllers that would have been typical amongst a tight, focused, high-performing team, a way of reducing tension and having a little bit of a laugh. And the fact that Grissom later returned the sandwich in semi-digested form while he waited for recovery probably added to the general amusement over the incident. But official Washington, who were, after all, fitting the footing the bill for this activity, were not, in fact, amused. Eventually, the press got wind of the event. Questions were asked of NASA management. Questions, in fact, were asked in Congress. NASA senior leadership was asked pointedly what they were going to do about this lack of discipline amongst their astronauts, who were, after all, involved in events of national significance, a responsibility that the public did not expect to be taken lightly, etc., etc., etc. In the end, Zhang Young actually ended up with a formal reprimand on his file. The whole incident was treated by NASA veterans, uh, ground controllers and crew alike, as kind of a massive tempest in a very, very small teapot, an example of the Washington bean-counting tail wagging the operational dog. And to be fair, eh, that seems like a pretty reasonable characterization. But, like the naming of the spacecraft, the impromptu takeout service was never repeated. Or, if it was, it stayed strictly private amongst the crew. Um, like it or not, the price that NASA paid for being granted the billions of dollars that it would need to get to the moon was that everyone on the program had to act like they were in the public eye all of the time. It really was the start of a new era. But these incidents were not the hallmarks of this new era. They were really just signposts. The real hallmark of the new era was the way in which NASA accelerated through Gemini 3 and into the rest of the Gemini program and beyond. Yet while it had taken two pretty long years to get from the last Mercury astronaut flight to the first Gemini astronaut flight, those years had not, in fact, been wasted, and this was a fact that NASA was about to start demonstrating. From this point forward, NASA really would never again take a backseat to anyone, including the Soviet space program. NASA would pile technical achievement on technical achievement and would achieve a cadence of flights that, frankly, it has rarely equaled since. To put it in perspective, it had taken four years to get from Alan Shepard's first American spaceflight to Gemini 3. It would only take a little bit more than four years to get Neil Armstrong to the surface of the moon.
And that's about where we're going to leave it today on Terranauts. We'll pick up the story of the Gemini program next time. Thanks for listening. Talk to you again soon. Come on, let's keep the chatter down.